Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is my interview with Richard E. Grant for his new film, Can You Ever Forgive Me? It's Jack Hawk. Last time I saw you, thank you. We were both pleasantly pissed at some horrible book party. Am I right? It's slowly flooding back to me. You're friends with, um, Julia somewhere. Steinberg? Yeah. She's not an agent anymore. She died. She did? Jesus, that's young. Maybe she didn't die. Maybe she just moved back to the suburbs. I was confused those two. No, that's right. She got married and had twins. Better to have died. Indeed. All right, everyone, I am being joined right now at the moment by Richard E. Grant. You know him from a lot of movies, including Spice World, Gosford Park. You might have seen him on television for Game of Thrones, Logan. And now he is currently starring in the film Can You Ever Forgive Me, which also stars Melissa McCarthy. And to even add a little bit more excitement to the news that we are talking with him this morning, he just found out that he is a Golden Globe nominee for Best Supporting Actor. Richard, how how are you today? Uh, absolutely stunned and levitating, frankly. It's uh, beyond anything that I could ever have imagined. I'm absolutely thrilled. Well, we are absolutely thrilled for you as well because we all love your work in this Thank film. You. Uh, we love you and everything that you've been doing so far throughout your career. I have to come right out and ask this right away, actually, uh, because if I don't ask this, uh, I'm sure I'll get a few comments from some people. Okay. Um, <laughs> You were associated with the the movie Spice World, and yeah. I'm just really curious to hear what your thoughts are on the Spice Girls reunion tour. <laughs> oh, I'm, I can't wait to see it. Um, I had such a good time, and people were so snooty about uh, being that movie. You know, in 1996, I think it was when we made it, and uh, my daughter was eight years old at the time, and I was so thrilled that I was offered this part of their manager, and uh, she got to meet them and hang out with them. The script is mostly improvised around them, and they were absolutely hilarious. And I just turned, you know, I just turned forty, so uh, it was it was like um, Viagra without having to drop the pill. Not that I've done that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you you know, it's funny. You know, you say how. You were 40 uh, back in the 90s when you made that film. Can You Ever Forgive Me is a film that uh, takes place in the 90s in New York. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually curious to know um, if you were around in New York during the 90s when this film actually takes place. And were you um, pretty familiar with what the backdrop was like back then? I was. And the the memory that I have that was most apt and most uh, poignant to playing this Jack Hawk character in this uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me was I went to visit my friend Sandra Bernhardt who was living in the meatpacking district and we'd done a movie together called Hudson Hawk the year before and I saw men on street corners in Manhattan uh, and a wealthy part of Manhattan as well and densely populated that were dying of AIDS and I'd never seen that before um, and they had pieces of cardboard saying, I'm dying of AIDS. I've been forsaken by my God. I've been abandoned by my family. I have no Medicare. Please help me. Anything, 
you know, it goes a long way. And that left such an indelible you know, memory that uh, I certainly w was channeled that in the final scene that I had in the movie where I'm, you know, clearly don't have long to go. So, yeah. uh, so being in New York at that time and just the contrast of a city that is so wealthy and seeing people in that, in that state, you've, you know, it's such a blink away in history that, uh, it's very easy to forget that it, it's so recent that at that yeah. point it was still a plague. There was no, at that point there was still no hope of, um, a cure. So, you know, it was very, very tough for people then. And I had a great friend, uh, Ian Charlson, who was in the movie Chariots of Fire, who died of AIDS at the age of 40 in 1990. So the bandana I wore in that final scene was an absolute homage to the last time that I saw him because that's what he was wearing. Wow. So I imagine that when you received the screenplay for uh, this movie, mm -hmm. um, you immediately had a personal connection to it. I did, yeah. Absolutely. Um, absolutely dead, dead right. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came across the screenplay and then, uh, you know, met Marielle Heller after that? Um, I was sent November two years ago, I was sent the screenplay by my agent who said, you have 24 hours to read this and make a decision. And I, oh, back. I said, what is it, like Mission Impossible? And she said, no, uh, they start shooting in early January. You, you have to decide. And I said, well, who's dropped dead? Who's dropped out? And they said, she said, don't, don't worry about that. Um, <laughs> Just concentrate on reading it. And then I saw it was Marielle Heller, you know, diary of a teenage, teenage girl uh, that she directed that, which I so liked. And I knew, I recognized the two screenplay writers, Jeff Whitty and Nicole Holofcenter, and of course, Melissa McCarthy. So I read it, expecting that it would be potentially a comedy vehicle for her um, and didn't realize that it was obviously a very serious role and a serious story with, you know, comic elements and very caustic wit. But mm -hmm. I knew from that that, it, it, Melissa was taking a, you know, a right or left turn, whichever way down, you know, big drama and, and serious character work. So, you know, I said yes, within two hours of reading it. And then we started in January. Wow. Geez. So that, that was about two years ago. So from yeah, and then the we started that... shooting in January, uh, middle of January, 2017. So yeah. Isn't it funny how like award season does tend to prolong the life of a movie that you could have wrapped up so long ago? And yet there are other movies that you do like in the meantime that, you know, no offense or anything like that. But they just sometimes just seem to come and go. Yeah. It's like all feels very random in a sort of way, right? It's it's absolutely bizarre, Matt, because the, the movie took a total of 26 days to shoot. I was on it for 20 days and I've done more days talking about it and on the promotions trail, if you like, over the last two months of the Telluride, then it actually took to make the movie. And exactly what you said, you know, I had a part playing Lord of the um, Shiver realm in the Disney Nutcracker, which was a huge budget thing that, you know, came out in gazillion cinemas and I think is gone already. And this film, you know, released in very, on a very small scale has had this enormous critical and awards nomination traction. So it, you know, it's like what John Lennon said before he was murdered. Life is what happens in between your plans. You can't predict any of this. Well, <laughs> one film that's not going to have a small platform release is uh, Star Wars Episode Nine. This is true. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a limited release. They'll do it. They'll do it like a week by week rollout. No, it's <laughs> yeah. going to be huge, obviously. And for you, I have to imagine, like at this stage in your career, um, being in so many different uh, film roles, and you know, I, I, I see this trajectory right now with 
Game of Thrones, you know, biggest show on television. You were in Logan, which was a substantial hit. Uh, you're having an awards run with Can You Ever Forgive Me? Episode nine. How does it feel like for you at this stage in your career to be getting this level of recognition and notoriety in such high scale projects? Beyond anything that I could possibly, possibly have anticipated, because you know, most actors and I have many friends who are actors, you know, once you hit 50, because it's so youth centric, um, the roles are diminishing your, your cachet or whatever you call it, um, is, you know, it gets smaller and smaller by the year. So the fact that there's mm-hmm. been, been this upsurge is a complete astonishment to me. So I, I'm enjoying it for as long as the ride lasts. Yeah, I could I could totally understand that part of it. Um, I'm not even going to bother asking you anything about Star Wars Episode Nine because oh, I know you're probably you, it sworn. Comes ni- it comes it comes out on the 19th of December, 2019. <laughs> well, okay, <laughs> that's something at least. I got something. That's what, that's what they've told me I can take. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Otherwise, I'm sure you're going to get force choked by somebody somewhere in the executive offices. You know, if you blab anything else. I, I am sitting in a straight jacket of uh, Calvin Klein <laughs> steel reinforced underwear. Right Right now, in case I say anything. <laughs> but can you ever forgive me? The film that you can definitely talk a lot about here. Tell me about working with Melissa McCarthy as a screen actor partner. You two have so many scenes together in this movie, and the chemistry between the two of you is undeniably great. Is that something that you're very conscious of as an actor? And what was it like ultimately working with her? I think that. If you put it in terms of of dating somebody, you hope that when you go in, that you're going to, you know, you read the profile of somebody and you think, well, is this going to work? You hope that the things that you have in common are actually going to fire into some kind of, you know, combustible relationship. We met on a Friday for a couple of hours in a hotel downtown in Manhattan and talked through the script and where we thought the movie and what the movie was, then had lunch and then we started shooting on Monday. So that was as much time as we had. But having said that, within three nanoseconds of meeting each other, it was absolutely clear that we had some connection. And whether it's because I grew up in a small town in the middle of nowhere, she grew up on a farm, you know, outside Chicago in Illinois, I have no idea to try and understand or decimate, um, delineate how you have a connection with somebody. But it was absolutely instant. And our friendship grew very, very fast, as it does in a movie, because you're in such an intimate contact with somebody for many, many hours of the day. And unusually for me, I came in and had lunch or dinner with uh, Melissa almost every day. So it was something that doesn't very, you know, that's rare for that to happen on a movie because usually by the end of the day or the middle of the day, you're sick and tired of the person that you, you know, you, you need a break from the people that you're working with rather than want to magnetize towards them. So, and that's, you know, that's, that's like something that feels like lightning in a bottle. I wish that it could be like that on every movie, but, um, you know, it, it isn't because people have very complicated lives and relationships, but we have, you know, we just have a great connection and that is, I think, obvious in the on the screen. Yeah, no, it definitely is. It looks like you two uh, for sure had many fun days on set. Um, are there any particular stories or any funny moments from those days on set or anything like that that you would like to share with us oh, get, from working uh, with Melissa? The, the scene of uh, removing all the uh, cat how do I put this delicately? Detritus under her bed, <laughs> her character's bed. Um, 
that was, I mean, it was hilarious because it was obviously the props people had made plasticine turds. Um, but we had to, you know, act that it was really bad. And poor Mariel Heller, the director, uh, had te- her patience was tested because we laughed so much doing that and we had to be very serious about it that, you know, this was Lee Israel at a, one of her lowest moments and, you know, somebody was showing a true act of friendship by saying, you know, even the the um, the pet exterminator, whatever, uh, the rodent exterminators are, w- won't come in until you've cleaned all that stuff up first. So that was enormously funny. And then on the opposite uh, end of the scale, the final scene that I have with her in the Julius Bar when our characters have been estranged for seven months and she hasn't seen me and is now asking my forgiveness and permission to write Jack Hawk, the character I play, into her memoir, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Um, because it was our penultimate scene that we shot together and it was a farewell scene and she knew that my character was dying of AIDS, that it, all of those things combined to make it very, very charged and very emotional. So we were, we were wiped out by the end of that day. I can only imagine. Speaking of uh, the AIDS uh, aspect of it, it, it was astonishing to me, and it was something I picked up on right away, how this is a character who is slowly decaying on the inside, but on the outside is so full of life and energy. And I was really curious as, a, as an actor, uh, what kind of research you did, um, either into the real life person or um, any other forms of inspiration you drew upon to have that character fully come alive? Uh, there was very little information in her memoir about Jack Hawk, uh, curiously for me. And I knew that he was 47 when he died in 1994. He was from Portland, Oregon. He was blonde and tall, everything that I'm not. And he also as far as I know, had been abandoned by his family. All his friends had died of AIDS. And he was really on his uppers. He'd been in jail for two years for holding a taxi driver up at knife point um, for uh, disagreement about the fare. But I, the, the person that I really drew inspiration from was, again, this actor that I told you about, Ian Charlson, who mm-hmm. had, he had on the, one, on the one side a very openly dissolute, louche lifestyle and on the other, an incredible sense of humor, very, very caustic, hilariously funny, and uh, a kind of little boy lost quality that I thought was so endearing. And you felt that he could, you know, charm the birds out of the trees kind of thing. So he was a person that I often, I often drew upon. And I also think that anybody who knows that they've got, you know, the fuse wire of their life is about to blow up and is, they, they can see the bomb um, you have two choices that you either go down the, 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 the route or the route of, um, self-destruction and m- martyrdom and misery, or you live every day as though for the moment in the moment, because it may be your last moment. And I think that that is what energized him and what made him so determined and willing to put up with anything, uh, that Lee threw at him because he thought, well, he recognized in her that she was profoundly lonely and they form this sort of weird, you know, push me, pull you love, hate platonic relationship. So that's, that was really the inspiration, my thought behind it. Now, do you like uh, when you're doing your process as an actor, do do you like to have like a formulated backstory? Like, do you like to get as much information as much as humanly possible about your character? Or do you like to be spontaneous and um, discover things as you go on set? A combination of those things, because 
again, preparation is all. So the more backstory and the more preparation that you have um, means that when you actually get to the moment that you shoot something, you can dispense with all that and forget about it and just play what the scene is um, because you've done all the preparatory the, the preparatory work on your own. And I'm certainly not somebody who sat around with Melissa going, well, I'd like to tell you what happened just before the scene and what happened after and what kind of shoes I'd be wearing, and what my mother was like, or where, you know, what my father did to me or whatever. We didn't do any of that. It was, it was purely reacting off each other and what the yeah. script and the director gave us mm-hmm. M- much more simple than, than I'm probably making it sound. No, and, and a great credit, too, to Marielle Heller and to McCarthy and all the other collaborators on this film. I, I, I think it's one of the most seamlessly effortless and enjoyable movies I've seen in 2018 Thank in you. terms of how it's all put together. And you're definitely a huge, huge component of that as well. But I'm really curious to know uh, in regards to this role, I, and I know a lot of actors like to be challenged you know they get excited about a challenge that a role can give them or an opportunity uh what did you see here in this character of uh, jack as a challenge or an opportunity for you that maybe you had not had a chance to explore before as an actor i think uh i've obviously the first film that i ever did 32 years ago with me and i played an alcoholic out of work actor so i know that there's an obvious similarity that you're playing somebody who is on the fringe who is failing upwards but what this character has more than anything, which I was so attracted to, um, was that he has enormous compassion and joie de vivre in the midst of knowing that he's in the jaws of death. And so that contradiction is something that is so I've never I've never been offered uh, the chance to play that before. And more than anything, that it it really goes to the A to Z of the vicissitudes of friendship in that. When they first meet in the bar, they've met once before and she can vaguely remember. And there's that kind of instant attraction, loyalty of friendship that you get at the beginning. Then the inevitable portrayal that happens and the poignancy of the reconciliation, knowing that he is dying. So in a, in a way, it's sort of concertinas my experience of many friendships where if you're not married to the person or you're not blood related, they are fragile things. They, they're things that we choose to do. You know, you choose to be um, a friend of somebody. Whereas if you fall in love with somebody, I, I don't know that you really have that much choice. It just it sort of happens by instinct. Mm-hmm. And your family is your family. Whereas friendships are things that, you know, that the people are affected by that enormously. And I think that yeah, irrespective of their sexual orientation, it really deals with the nature of friendship in the film in a way that I think is what makes it so touching and moving and funny. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with all those points you just said as well. For people who may not have seen the film yet, yeah, um, if you could say anything to them in terms of what they can expect or take away from watching Can You Ever Forgive Me, what would you tell them? <laughs> uh, well, I think... At best, it can make you laugh, and uh, it can also move you and make you cry at the end. So to me, that's that's a pretty good night out for your bang for your buck. I think so, too. Uh, comedy and drama always blended together, always exactly. go so effortlessly. It's, it's fantastic. Um, one last question here. Uh, the future. 
Uh, obviously, right now you're in the middle of this awards run, and uh, c- congratulations once again on Thank the you. Golden Globe nomination. That's so wild and so cool. <laughs> um, and you know, we don't we we don't expect it to stop there. Neither should you. Enjoy the ride for as long as it lasts, like you said. But be going beyond that, I mean, and especially too. I mean, you know, I know I'm not gonna. I'm not going to pry you about Star Wars, okay? I'm not going to do that. But anything else beyond uh, that right now that's currently lined up for you? Is there anything uh, that you've been offered or anything that you're allowed to tell us that the future holds? I've been offered some stuff, but, um, you know, again, it's that thing. um, If you, because I may not do it or some other actor gets it instead, then it looks like you are either ungrateful or that you've been dumped for somebody else. So I can't, Mm -hmm. you know, until I sign the contract, I can't actually say to you what I, what I am doing next other than what I am doing right now is I'm in the middle of Star Wars. I understand that. Just really quickly, I mean, and you don't have to give anything away necessarily because Star Wars is the biggest production I imagine that you've ever been on set for. Absolutely. I don't know the scale of your role or anything like that. Nor me. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was going to say, because... Uh, all right, so you, you're implying that it might, there might be some stuff in the editing room? Always. There's always a possibility that you're cut out completely. You never know. Mm, but uh, <laughs> comparing the experience now of a large-scale production like that, I imagine you've never been on a set like that before. Never. I've never seen sets like this before. And, you know, it, it's taken over the whole of the Pinewood lot, um, yeah. including the Bond stages at, at Pinewood. It's on a scale that is, you know, I, I naively thought that a lot of the stuff might be green screened, but mm-hmm. when you walk in there, it's the real thing. And you go, yeah, yeah so you have a pinch yourself moment. So every day I've worked, I've said to JJ Abrams, the director, please pinch me on the shoulder so that I can know I am actually here. And he feels the same. Yeah, so I imagine you prefer to be in an environment that feels lived in, that feels real, <laughs> and as opposed to that green screen environment. So, yeah, exactly. As most actors typically do. Yeah. Well, uh, I really, really appreciate you taking some time to talk with me today about Can you, you Ever Forgive Me? I mean, it, like I said before, it's one of my favorite films of the year. It's a movie that I wish that more people had checked out a little while ago, but hopefully now with some of this awards recognition for you and Melissa McCarthy, um, the film does start to get, pick up a little bit more steam and people can definitely seek it out because you, both of your performances in it are absolutely brilliant. Thank you. Absolutely. Good luck to you with everything that you have going on. Congratulations once again, and thank you so much. Thank you very much, sir. All right. You have a nice day. And you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Richard E. Grant for his new film, Can You Ever Forgive Me? You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, and now newly on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and also your support. If you head on over to Patreon for $1 minimum a month, you can get some exclusive podcast content from us as well. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we shall see you all next time. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, 
punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.